one of the most uh, read books ever is actually this book by Stephen Covey. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's one of those books if you want to grow in self-leadership. It's a phenomenal book, and in this book, he gives seven habits or seven principles that we can adopt in order to grow in our character and our integrity. And I love this book because one of the habits that it presents is something that I honestly think about often. And one of these habits, he says, to begin with the end in mind. And what he's talking about is imagine yourself at your own funeral. I know that sounds very morbid on this celebration weekend of July 4th, but regardless if we want to ignore that reality or not, no matter how old you are, whether you're a child in this room or even older, someday we're going to be gone and someday people are going to gather at your funeral. And he says you need to begin with the end in mind. In other words, you need to think about who do you want to become? What do you want people to say about you? How do you want them to remember you? How are they going to visualize you and how will they keep you in their hearts as they move forward? And a question that Covey says in visualizing your own funeral is, what do you want them to say about you? So I want you to imagine your closest family, your closest friends, coworkers, those who interact with you. And as they're standing around memorializing you, what are they going to say? I heard a quote one time and it's something that I cringe at because I don't want this to happen. They said, one of the worst things that can happen in life is if people at your funeral feel like they have to lie about you in order to make you look good at your funeral. I mean, think about that. I had the privilege, I've done almost 50 funerals in my career. And I'm telling you, you can tell the difference between someone who just has lived a life that people want to talk about and others where you have to beg them just to say something in order to make the funeral somewhat meaningful. There's a difference. So my question to you is, how do you want to live now so that someday when people are thinking about the impact you had on them, they can say the really good things? What's so hard about this question and what's so important is that some of us, including me, if we look at aspects of our lives, we may say, I know they may say this about me, and that's good, but there's some other things that I cringe at. To think about what my grandchildren could say about me, or my kids, or my spouse, or a coworker, it can make us feel like, oh my goodness, I don't even want to think about it. I don't like how I'm living. I don't like some of the aspects of our lives right now. I can feel the same way. The good news is you're still living. We're not planning your funeral yet. So whatever it is in your life right now that you don't like about yourself, or you cringe at thinking about people may say about you, or at least think about you, even though they may not say it. How can we change that? What's the blueprint going forward to how we can start with the end in mind so we can live the life God has called us to live? Well, that blueprint has a name, and his name is Barnabas. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're actually going to skip the first few parts because we're doing a chapter a week, and so we can only talk about so many things in a few moments. But I want to go to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to begin with the story of how the church in Antioch came to know Jesus. And you'll see how it relates to Barnabas in a few moments. So let me read this passage to you. Acts eleven nineteen 19 through 21. 
Meanwhile, the believers who'd been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So if you're familiar with the book of Acts or you've been journeying with us over the last few weeks, you know in Acts chapter 7 at the end, Stephen dies. And because of Stephen's death, it leads to this wave of persecution that comes over the Christians. And so these Christians, they have to scatter so they don't die. And that's part of God's plan. He scatters people to then go spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to surrounding communities. And one of those towns that people go to in order to share Christ is this place called Antioch. Let me show it to you on a map here. If you can see Antioch over that way, right above Syria, it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And back then in the Greco-Roman world, it was a booming town. It was the third largest town behind Rome and Alexandria. And Antioch, where people were at, they were not worshiping God, uh, at least Yahweh at the time, nor Jesus, which is to come. They were worshiping Greek gods. That was their form of religion. And all of a sudden, Christians go and start to preach the gospel in Antioch, and these uh, believers and these Greek gods, they change their beliefs. Instead of believing in these Greek gods, which were cultural gods, they've believed forever. They change their belief, and they start to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they start to follow Jesus. And in fact, this church in Antioch becomes a thriving church. In fact, John Stott, who is an incredible author, and he says this about Antioch. He says, no more appropriate place could have been imagined either as the venue for the first international church or the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. Of all the churches to lead to this effort to continue to know Jesus in the surrounding world that didn't know him yet, Antioch was an unlikely choice, but they had a huge impact in the world. In fact, if you were just to fast forward a little bit in Acts chapter 11, look how these Antioch Christians respond to this famine that was coming. This is Acts 11, 27 through 30. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they can. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take them to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So unbeknownst to everyone there, in 45 AD, the Nile River was going to flood. And there was going to be a great famine in all the land. And as Agabus stood up through the Spirit to proclaim this prophetic event that's going to happen, all of these Antioch Christians decided to give. Now, generosity is one of those things that is a mark of those who know Jesus. 
If you know Jesus and you realize how much he has done for you, you can't help but be generous, especially with your finances. You know that God has gifted everything to you and you are a steward. And so we want to gift that to people, especially those in need. Well, these Antioch Christians hear about this famine and they all stand up and they say, we will give as much as we can to these relief efforts. Now, these people were not Christians all their life. Some of us, we've known Jesus since we've been a little child and we've grown up in church. Not these Antioch Christians. Only moments before that, we read that they were worshiping these Greek gods. They were entrenched in this Roman world. And now they separated themselves. And now they're a light to the world, giving as much as they can. Now, if you and I were to go back and interview these Antioch Christians and say, what was it that led you to going from worshiping these Greek gods to truly faithfully following Jesus in a culture you could die for it? I think they would say a lot of different things. But I promise you, there would be one outlier. And he had a name. His name is Barnabas. In a passage that I'm going to show you, I want you to think about the person that you want to become. Start with the end in mind. Who are you becoming so that someday when you are gone, people will remember you for a certain thing? And think about what we read in Luke's description of Barnabas. And you tell me if this isn't what you and I want written in our obituary someday. It's so powerful. Watch this. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, remember these people were coming to Jesus, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Look at verse 24 here. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. Many people were brought to the Lord. I hope someday when I am gone and you are reading my obituary, I hope I've lived a life worthy of the calling of Christ that my wife just writes those last few words in verses 23 and 24. That he was an encouragement. He was filled with joy. He was a good man, salt of the earth man. He was just full of God's spirit and you could tell. And because of what he did and how he lived, people came to know Jesus. Talk about starting with the end in mind. Wouldn't you love to be known as someone like Barnabas? Well, you see, Barnabas is one of those guys that lived this word encouragement out loud in such a way that it became who he was. Literally, it was who he was. Go back with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 36. This is where we first interact with Barnabas. His name is now Barnabas. It's Joseph. Look what it says in verse 36. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, nicknames, they reveal a lot about people. Maybe you have a nickname. Maybe your spouse has a nickname from, from you. We won't talk about that here. Maybe you were given a nickname growing up as a child. I was. When I became a, uh, about a sophomore in high school, my baseball coaches nicknamed me Bob. And if you're new to the chapel, you know that my name is not Bob, it is Eric. So why would they call me Bob? 
Well, this team, formerly known as the Cleveland Indians at the time, they had a closer named Bob Wickman. If you're familiar with the Indians, you remember Bob Wickman was a stud closer. He came over from the Milwaukee Brewers, and he became a a great closing pitcher for the Indians. I, too, was a closer on our JV baseball game, which simply means if they wanted to win the game, they brought in a guy, and I would try to continue to keep the lead and win the game. And so you may think, that's a great nickname. And it was. But the one thing that I am leaving out is that Bob Wickman was very overweight, and so was I. (laughs) So my coaches, when it was time to go in for the game, they went and said, hey, Eric, go get warmed up. They said, hey, Bob, go get warmed up. And to this day, my coaches, when they see me, 25 years later, they say, Bob, to me. Yeah, it's one of those names I wish I never had. But a nickname, it reveals a lot. For me, I guess I was a good pitcher and a little bit on the pudgy side. But for Joseph, his name was Barnabas. Why? Because Jesus' own apostles, the ones that were with Jesus, saw how he lived his life, and he was such an encouragement to people that they named him encouragement. Can you imagine living your life in such a way where Jesus' own followers at the time, who were with Jesus, watched your life and changed your name to what you're doing. Having such an impact on people that he came in touch with that they had to name him Encouragement or Barnabas because that's who he was. And when you learn what the word encouragement means, it's even more beautiful. So a great definition that I love to use for the word encouragement is not original to me. I just can't remember who said it. It's to infuse or inject courage into people. People who are discouraged, who are struggling, you can be the one to infuse or inject courage in them to keep going. But the biblical definition of encouragement is even better than that. With the help of uh, my mentor in New York City, not really my mentor, but a guy that I just love, Tim Keller, he says this about the word encouragement. The word encouragement in Greek, which is what the New Testament is written, it's called parakaleo. Parakaleo, two words. The first word para means to come alongside of someone. And it's a very tender word. So and oftentimes when we think of encouragement, we want to be a blessing to someone. We want to be kind to them. We want to help them. We want to come alongside of them and what they're doing. And so just an illustration, if someone is just going somewhere in life, they're on the journey and they're in a boat and they're trying to get to where they are, you are getting in the boat with them. Wherever they're headed, you're in it with them. You're coming alongside of them. You're doing whatever it takes to help them. A very tender, loving word. But the word kaleo is a very strong word. And it means to call someone or point someone to truth. Other ways of using this word encouragement in other translation, it's the word exhortation. You are showing somebody the truth. You're pointing them back to what they need to keep their eyes on because probably because of their discouraging circumstances, they've taken their eyes off of God. They don't know where he is right now because they can't see past their circumstances. So what you're doing is you're getting in the boat with them and you see that they're going in the wrong direction. And so what you're doing is you're taking over and you're steering the boat in the right direction so they need to get where they need to be. 
Isn't that just such a beautiful word? A tender word, but a strong word. Coming alongside of someone in order to point them to truth, to point them back to Jesus so they can see Jesus in the midst of their difficult circumstances. So if we go back to Barnabas, if he truly is an encourager, he's probably doing two things simultaneously. He's coming alongside of somebody and letting them know that they're not alone. In our culture right now, we do that when it fits in our schedule. And what's funny is, I've noticed when I'm with someone and I really need encouragement, I'm hoping they encourage me, but they're always checking their phone because, of course, their phone's going off. And it shows me I'm not the most important person, but I need to be just in that moment. Barnabas, though he didn't have phones back then, if he did, I think he'd put it on silent. I think he would look that person in the eye and say, I'm, I'm just with you. I just want to listen. I want to hear your heart. I know what you're going through is really difficult. And I'm here with you. I'm in the boat. I'm going where you're going. But he wouldn't just tell him cheap platitudes. Like, it's all going to be okay. Because maybe it's not going to be. Maybe we need to inject courage into someone who's going through a hard time and may never stop going through that hard time. And I think what Barnabas would do, I think he would get into the boat And I think he would just remind people of the grace and truth of Jesus and all that God has for them, even in the midst of it. I think if Barnabas was in the boat, I think he would say, in this world, you will have troubles. But hey, remember Jesus, he overcame the world. I think Barnabas would be right next to us, just encouraging us to point us back to the truth of Jesus when we can't see him. I think he would be telling us how Jesus is in it with us in the midst of our discouragements and our disappointments and our doubt. You see, when you read the first part of the Antioch church, you see they start to come to know Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 11, they are making a difference in the world. And who is between that? It's Barnabas. Barnabas encouraged these believers who may have gone backwards in their faith sometimes, who kept going back to their Greek culture, the Roman culture, because that's just what they knew. He kept encouraging them to stay true to the Lord. And you see the impact these, these people, uh, Barnabas had on these people. What kind of impact are you going to have on somebody? You have one shot on this earth. We don't get do-overs. We don't get to get to the end and, and we get to get, get to Jesus and we say, oh man, Jesus, I, I didn't live the life that you were calling me to. Can I just go back one more time? And it doesn't work. You and I have one shot here to make a difference. And so often in our culture, we are told to live life for ourselves, to do whatever we have to do to make ourselves happy, to really look out for number one, and that number one is you. And you can live that way. But I'm telling you, I've done a lot of funerals for people who live that way, and not a lot of people show up. You think I'm joking? Come with me someday. But for the people who cared more about others than they care for themselves, there has been a time in a funeral service that I did where we had to cut off the line because there were so many people there we had to get started with the true funeral service. We had to cut off the showing line because everyone showed up to tell his wife what he meant to them. That can be you. That should be you. And that should be me. So how do we do it? How do we do it today? How do we live the life now that we want to be remembered for then? 
an easy way that can change your life, and especially those around you, is to listen to the wisest man ever created. And it's not me, it's Solomon. And here's what Solomon says in Proverbs 12, 25. I just love it. Worry weighs a person down, but an encouraging word cheers a person up. I'm going to give you an illustration here. So that word, worry, can be translated as anxiety or heaviness. People's worries, people's anxieties, people's heaviness, it it weighs them down, literally bends them over. But an encouraging word, an encouraging act, can literally lift people up. So many people in your orbit right now, whether they live in your home or in your workplace, in your schools, a stranger walking by, is carrying something like this. And it's not something they carry on their backs, it's what they carry in their hearts. And in this book bag, there contains some rocks. This rock represents somebody who has, let's say, a test that they have to take, and they're a little scared about it. Maybe this rock here is someone dealing with something at work, and they're not really sure what to do about it. It just it weighs on them. Maybe it, here's a rock in someone's life of where they're weighed down because they have to have a conversation with a friend, and you don't know how that friend's going to react. And so this is something maybe they're carrying. Or, and I would say this happens a lot, there's people carrying around this thing. This is heavy, by the way. <laughs> Imagine the weight that it puts on someone's soul when they have to carry this around every single day. I can drop this, but they can't. And many of these big, these big rocks that people carry around in their hearts are the three things that I think of. It's the unfamiliar, I've never done this before. The unknown, I've never been there before. Or the uncomfortable, I've never experienced these before. It could be someone that says, I've never had to go through marriage troubles like this before. I never thought they would downsize my job before. I didn't think the Lord would ask me to move I didn't think I'd ever have to grieve the loss of a child or a parent or a sibling or a spouse this early in my life. There's depression and anxiety. People just, they're carrying this around all the time. And yeah, a lot of people smile at you, but this is in their lives, big and small. And if you and I want to be Barnabas for people, all we need to do is stop focusing on ourselves and look to somebody else and help carry these rocks with them. You may not be able to solve it. You may not be able to take it out of their life, but they, all they need is help. If I had four of you just come up on stage and hold this for me, it'd feel a lot lighter. It'd feel a lot more manageable. What if we lived our lives that way? Uh, what if someone who is Lonely right now, and you know they're lonely. If you want to paracoleo them, if you want to encourage them, you're going to show up. Bring them their favorite ice cream unannounced. And then you remind them of the scriptures that say that they're never alone because Jesus is with them and the body of Christ is alongside of them. For the person whose marriage is falling apart, you show up and you listen and you pray. And you put away your phones because these people's marriage is falling apart and you help them carry it. And then you strongly point them to Jesus and maybe Jesus needs to point something out in them so they can help fix the marriage. Maybe it's someone carrying this rock of the unknown. They don't know what's up ahead and 
What you're doing is you're sitting with them and researching topics with them or new locations of maybe a new house or a new job for them. And then you say, hey, by the way, let me carry this with you by telling you 365 times in the Bible it says do not worry or fear. You tell me you do that on a regular basis, whether it's a big rock or a little rock in someone's life, and all of a sudden the weight becomes less. And you're helping them. You're injecting courage in them. There's too many people in this world that all they care about is themselves. And this is how I phrase it. When I walk into a room, the people that all they care about themselves, here I am. You know people walk in a room, here I am. I want people to say how good I look. I want people to ask me how I am doing. I want people to encourage me. There's the here I am people who will never know what rocks other people carry. Or there's the people that says, there you are. When I walk into a room, I may have some heaviness too, but man, I'm going to go see what rocks they're carrying. I'm going to journey with people so I can maybe just take one out of their life altogether. Here I am. There you are. I love this quote by Kate McCabe. She's talking about Charles, her mentor. It says he changed the room simply by walking into it. He believed so completely in many of his students and colleagues that we had no choice to believe in ourselves. I think when he died, there are people around him that simply encouraged everybody else by stories of how Charles made an impact on them. I wonder when Barnabas died, I don't think they did funerals like we did now, but when they got word that Barnabas passed away, this Antioch church, they grieved deeply. But they looked around and they saw all that was happening and so many reasons why, but a huge part of it was Barnabas because Barnabas knew how to carry rocks for people. Someday, you are going to be gone. And how you live right now will be how you're remembered in the end. Imagine being someone known as a Barnabas who looked to encourage everybody they came in contact with. What do you need to start doing now in order to have that Barnabas effect on other people? Let's pray together. So Lord, we just ask to take away our selfishness and our pride. Take away this woe is me mentality and just free us to go collect rocks from people. Free us to go help speak a word or take someone out to coffee or send a text or whatever it is so that we can literally lift the hearts of people by just encouraging them. Help us to do that on a daily basis, God, not so that people think we're great, but so people can see our heavenly Father and think he's great through us. In Jesus' name, amen.